A little earlier in the program, uh, we made an announcement which was received with more than the usual enthusiasm when we indicated that our guests for this evening were going to be Mr. Humphrey Bogart and Miss Loren Bacall. That's the attractive couple who paid us a visit just one month ago, I believe. I'm happy now to report the arrival of the first of our guests. Here, ladies and gentlemen, then, is the very charming actress, the very charming, delightful lady, Miss Loren Bacall. Hello, Bing. You're very nice to visit us again, uh, Loren. Now, Bing, let's not be formal. Formal? I thought we agreed the last time I was here that you'd call me by my nickname. Well. Why can't you call me Baby? Uh, <laughs> I intended to call you Baby, but I always forget. But why? Well, I guess because I'm just not used to girl babies. <laughs> Wednesday, March 12th, 1952, at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Bogart and McCall guest starred on Bing Crosby's CBS Chesterfield show. Two days later, Bogart's next film, Deadline USA, premiered in New York City. Bogart plays Ed Hutchinson, a newspaper editor who exposes a gangster's crimes, while also trying to reconcile with his ex-wife. His performance was well-received. Bogart and Bacall's appearance on the Bing Crosby show pulled a rating of 9.1. But in the house, it's awful. Why, oh, you're not serious. I can't believe it. This, this boy thinks he's got a voice. Is it honest? Yeah. And every night he insists on going into the nursery and singing Little Stevie to sleep. Does the baby like this? No, I don't think so. When Bogey is singing, he curls up into a ball and sticks the end of his diapers in his ears. <laughs> you've got a serious problem. Now, outside of annoying the baby, what, what other singing does Bogey do? Well, he always sings in the shower. You've lost him. He's gone. He spends hours in there, and he's so silly. He rubs soap in his eyes on purpose. Why? So he can cry like Johnny Ray. Uh, <laughs> you do that with soap, huh? I've tried everything. I couldn't get it. Bing, mm. stay as sweet as you are. Thank you. The same to you. <laughs> Bing, you've just got to talk Bogey out of this idea that he's a singer. Here he comes now. Oh, yes, folks, here's Humphrey Bogart. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, baby. Hello, baby. Hi, Boogie. Oh, uh, here, boy. Hold my music. <laughs> what are you singing, John Peel or something? <laughs> Hold your music. What for? What for, yes. he says. What for? What's the matter, Crosby? You afraid of a little new blood? Oh, did you get some new blood? <laughs> Now, you know what I mean. I was just asking. I thought I might get some for myself. Oh, don't tell me your troubles. Why don't you just be a sweet, charming self and forget about being a singer? Yeah, but I just started. Let me tell you something, Bogey. It just could be, you know, that you're a little too old to start singing. <laughs> it, could, it just could be that you're old enough to stop singing. Say, <laughs> so, you know something? You could be a reconditioned singer. I see a lot of them advertised on television with new bobbins and everything. You're old... He needs more than Bobbins. Hey, what is this? My own wife. Now, let's get this straight once and for all. Bing is my favorite singer, and you're my favorite husband. You're still playing his record of Mule Train. Even the mules gave up on that. <laughs> well, I'm not giving up. Yeah? Let me tell you something. Arthur Godfrey wants me on his talent scout program, but I can't get anyone to be my talent scout. <laughs> 
want to try the Boy Scouts of America. They're cooperative. Your display of jealousy is boring me. Pardon me while I spray my throat. Oh, get this. He's got an atomizer yet. <laughs> yeah, not bad. It's a good spray, huh? It ought to be. That's the only atomizer I ever saw with an olive in it. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I wished I had a spray like that when I was singing at the Coconut Grove in the old days, huh? Well, didn't you? <laughs> That's Bing. what I hear. I... <laughs> you know, Bing, show business is funny. When I was a guest on your program before, I thought it was going to be just another radio guest shot. But I sang, and suddenly it hit me. Singing is my racket. It opened up an entire new field for me. I understand you're not bad out in the field, is <laughs> You know, I think it's hardly fair to your public or to your admirers to just stand here and talk about your singing. I think it'd be very nice if, you, if you're serious about it to sing a number for the folks. Sing it right now. Well, I'd be very happy to. Bing, how could you? <laughs> I'm getting tired. I want to get off my feet for a minute. <laughs> well, I sing, baby. Tulips and Heather, that song Perry Como does so well. Why don't you sing that corny little sea chanty that you know so well? All right. Ladies and gentlemen, for my first selection, I will sing The Bold Fisherman, a bright yet compelling song of the sea. Yes, George. How are you, sir? I'm very fine, thank you. You don't mind if I had a minute on the baby last night? Well, no, dear. You go out ahead. <laughs> I hope I didn't interrupt the scene. No, you just caught me at the right time. Good. Congratulations, then, on the arrival of your new baby daughter, Leslie. Well, thank you very much, George. Would you have called the baby Leslie if it had been a boy? No, we had, a, uh, we had another name. If it was going to be a boy, we were going to call it Peter Belmont. Belmont was my father's first name. And Peter after anyone? And Peter, uh, oh, just because we like the sound of it. Ah, uh, wonderful. Peter Belmont. And how is baby, I mean, Laura? She's wonderful. She just wonderful. She went through it at about three hours. We went to hospital at 9 o'clock, and the baby was born at two minutes past 12, which I consider very considerate of Betty, you know, <laughs> after dinner and before going to bed at night. I think that's wonderful. By the way, do you have a little nursery fixed up already in the new home? Yes, that's been, <laughs> that's been ready for a month, and we got Stephen all prepared. For the arrival of the new baby. What you, know, was... you have to be a little careful because their noses get a little out of joint for a while unless you're very careful. What was his first reaction? Well, I'll tell you what, I think he doesn't realize how small she is, and uh, he thinks uh, she'll be right out in the garden playing with him the minute she gets home, you know. <laughs> That's difficult. Yeah, he said he was going to, I said, what are you going to do when the, your little sister comes home? And he said, we're going to climb trees, and <laughs> I'll take her for a ride on my tricycle on the back. You're going to have a ball. Yeah, that's pretty lucky, I guess, to have one of each. Oh, you're wonderful that way. Thanks so much for taking time out to talk to us. And again, congratulations and give our best to Lauren. Thank you, George. And just in, in closing, uh, I just wanted to add one little thing, that anybody that says women are the weaker sex is crazy. After having seen what they go through to uh, have a child and the way they bounce back in the morning is just wonderful. Oh, that was terrific, Bogey. Great. Bing, think what you're I'm doing. I'm not kidding, baby. His voice grows on a fellow. Like a vine. It's a little creepy. 
Uh, never mind my singing. Let's uh, talk about the African Queen for uh, a while. Bogus, no trouble at all to talk about the African Queen because it's a wonderful picture, great color. You and Catherine Hepburn, I understand, are up for Academy Awards as a result of this picture. Well, I hope Hepburn wins an Oscar. I, I sent her a little mahogany shelf to put it on. Well, that was a very, very nice gesture. Very nice of you to send her the shelf. Somebody bought, too. Well, I got mine to... <laughs> I got mine to put my metronome on. Sweet, dee dee dee. Say, you know, there was one scene in The African Queen that really killed me. The scene where you had the, uh, the whips and jingles, you know, the hangover? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hepburn took all your gin and poured it in the river. You just slumped to the deck of the boat and you did nothing about it. That, I believe, was the greatest test of my acting career. On August 23rd, 1952... Lauren Bacall gave birth to their second child, a daughter, Leslie Howard Bogart, named in honor of actor Leslie Howard, who got Bogart his first major film role in The Petrified Forest. The next day, Bogart spoke to George Fisher about the experience. Both were soon back working, as Bogart made Battle Circus, and Bacall made How to Marry a Millionaire. Here comes Humphrey Bogart over to our microphone while his lovely wife is getting all the attention that is due her at her own premiere. Because Lauren Bacall goes through this sort of thing when her husband's pictures are premiered, which, as a matter of fact, was not so long ago when they made African Queen. She stood by while he took all applauded. Uh, uh, good evening, George Fisher. I'm uh, extremely proud and, and, and pleased to be here and extremely proud to uh, see that Nunley Johnson has finally been photographed. He was complaining on the way down that nobody ever took a picture of him. And I said that if he would get in between Miss Lauren Bacall and Miss Marilyn Monroe, he couldn't miss. You're so right. George, thank you, and uh, uh, I think I should leave now, huh? I think it's wonderful that you came over to tell us that cute story, and I think that uh, I saw the picture yesterday, and I can only say that Lauren Bacall is just great in this picture. I'm very pleased to hear that. I've heard it before, and I hope it's you a know tremendous it's success. Thank you very much, Uncle Bogart. Bye-bye. Bogart's next big role and final Academy Award nomination came in an adaptation of Herman Wouk's Pulitzer Prize-winning 1951 novel, The Cane Mutiny. Bogart plays Captain Queeg. Captain, this following sea is brutal. We need more knots to outrun it. Race to engine control. This is the captain speaking. You down there in the engine room, I want power. Power on the starboard engine, do you hear? Emergency flank power. You want the ship to go down, we're in a typhoon. Relieve the watch. Pass the word to put on life jackets. It's difficult holding her, sir. The wheel feels loose. Captain, I don't know whether we can keep on riding with our stern to the wind. Those are three orders, Mr. Merrick. I still think the depth charges should be put on safe. Sir, the depth charges are on safe. Mr. Keeper gave me orders to set them. Why wasn't I told these things? I can't go steaming around with a lot of dead charges. Sir, I told Mr. Keith. You speak when you're spoken to. Mr. Keith, put this man on a board for insolence and neglect of duty. Man, get another helmsman. Keep that idiot face out of my sight. But still, Wells, our best man. Will you stop this back talk? Isn't there one officer on this ship that pays attention to my orders? There's a rumor been around the business that Humphrey Bogart and you got in a fight one time on a movie set. Is that true? No, I, uh, I think I almost killed him. Uh, but it was accidental. I had to ride, uh, I had a sidecar, a motorcycle. Yeah. 
in a picture called Invisible Stripes. I was playing George Raff's brother. That goes back a long time. And uh, the motorcycle had a shimmy in the wheel, in the front wheel, and I couldn't control it. And I had had motorcycles, and I was riding motorcycles at the time, but this was just happened to be a bad machine. So Bogart got out of the sidecar. He said, I'm not riding with that crazy so-and-so. He said, he's liable to kill me. So a stuntman got in, and sure enough, we turned the corner and went right through a brick wall. The, the whole gear in the front broke. Wow. Then he said, you see, he was going to try to kill me. And I said, Bogey, I'm not trying to kill you. I said, I had to go through the brick wall. I said, do you think I, I'm immune to bricks and you're going to get away with it? <laughs> <laughs> That's what started the rumor about fight. There was no fight. In 1954, Bogart starred opposite Audrey Hepburn and the just-heard William Holden in Billy Wilder's Sabrina. Bogart and Holden are brothers, Linus and David Larrabee, competing for the love of Sabrina Fairchild. Bogart agreed to it on a handshake with Wilder, although the script wasn't finished. It was not a happy set. Bogart didn't get along with Holden nor Hepburn and didn't like Wilder's hands-on approach. There were also numerous last-minute script changes. Bogart later said, I got sick and tired of who gets Sabrina. But the film proved to be a hit. The New York Times particularly praised Bogart's performance. It's all beginning to make sense. Mr. Tyson owns the sugar cane. You own the formula for the plastics. And I'm supposed to be offered up as a human sacrifice on the altar of industrial progress, is that it? make it sound so vulgar, David, as if the son of the hot dog dynasty were being offered in marriage to the daughter of the mustard king. Surely, surely you don't object to Elizabeth just because her father happens to have $20 million. That's very narrow-minded of you, David. Just one thing you overlooked. I haven't proposed and she hasn't accepted. Oh, don't worry. I proposed and Mr. Tyson accepted. Did you kiss him? Now, look, David, Elizabeth is one of the loveliest girls around. Sooner or later, you're going to propose to her anyway. I'm only trying to help you make up your mind. Then why don't you marry her? Me? Well, what's so funny? You want to die an old maid? Well, I was just thinking that if I were ever to get married, I'd have to take a dictaphone, two secretaries, and four corporation counselors along on the honeymoon. I'd be unfaithful to my wife every night of my married life with vice presidents, boards of directors, slide rule accountants. This, this is my home. No wife would ever understand it. Well, neither can I. You've got all the money in the world. But what's money got to do with it? If making money were all there was to business, it's hard to be worthwhile going to the office. Money is a byproduct. Well, what's the main objective? Power? Ah, that's become a dirty word. Well, then what's the urge? You're going into plastics now. What will that prove? Prove? Nothing much. A new product has been found, something of use to the world. So a new industry moves into an undeveloped area. Factories go up, machines are brought in, a harbor is dug and you're in business. It's purely coincidental, of course, that people who never saw a dime before suddenly have a dollar. And barefooted kids wear shoes and have their teeth fixed and their faces washed. What's wrong with the kind of an urge that gives people libraries, hospitals, baseball diamonds and uh, movies on a Saturday night? Mr. Carter, will you send in the secretaries? In the mid-1950s, Bogart and McCall's social circle began to be jokingly known as the Holmby Hills Rat Pack. The original members included Frank Sinatra Packmaster, 
Judy Garland, First Vice President. Super Agent Swifty Lazar, Recording Secretary. Writer Nathaniel Benchley, Pack Historian. And McCall, Den Mother. Bogart simultaneously made the barefoot Contessa opposite Rita Hayworth and Sinatra's ex-wife Ava Gardner. Then in 1955, he made Where No Angels, The Left Hand of God, and The Desperate Hours. Just before Christmas in 1955, Bogart was honored with a roast at the Friars Club. Uh, I'm very, very happy that you're here at this moment. Uh, because at this time, I'd like to present your husband with the uh, Friar gift. Same cheap crap everybody gets. Gold-plated cufflinks. The picture of Lenny Kent on the link. So, presenting the guest of honor at this afternoon's luncheon, and honestly, it was really wonderful to have him. He's a swell guy. From the Friars, our guest of honor, Humphrey Bogart. Thank you very much, uh Gentlemen, members of the Friar Club, red buttons, and the rest of the boys on the dais here. Uh, uh, I, uh, I, you've all used up all the four-letter words that I knew, so uh, I'm not going to take up much time, and also my wife is here. The more I look at her, as a matter of fact, now that uh, she's here, I think I have guts to marry her. You know? It takes a lot of guts. Uh, I've never been the guest of honor of anything, but uh, if there is such a profession, I think I might take it up and sort of travel around the country being a guest of honor, wherever anybody would want me, because I've never had so much fun in my life. I uh, highly flattered, and I'd like to thank you all, all of you, for being so nice to me. Thank you. Then, Bogart's persistent cough and difficulty eating became too serious to ignore. He went for a battery of tests in January of 1956. The results were bleak. He had esophageal cancer. He still managed to make his final film, The Harder They Fall, opposite Rod Steiger. Bogart plays a newspaperman turned boxing PR writer, bent on exposing the corruption he sees. 
critics gave the film, and his performance especially considering his condition, glowing reviews. This is the last scene Humphrey Bogart ever did in any film. Nothing. All right, come on. Where's Toro? What'd you do with him? I put him on the plane. Oh, come on now. Don't fool me. Where is he? I put him on a plane and sent him home. You want to hear it again? All right, you get him back. I don't know how you're going to get him back, but you get him back or you're going to have to pay me $75,000. Get out of here, Nick. I lay off. You listen to me. I sold Toro to Wirehouse. You shipped him out of the country. That means you stole my merchandise. Now I gotta pay Wirehouse back his money, and you're gonna make it up to me. Now how are we gonna begin? You're gonna give me back the $26,000 I gave you. That's gonna be the first payment. I gave it to Toro. Oh, come on, I can't believe that. Give me the money. I don't care what you believe. I gave it to Toro. All right. You throw away your money, but don't throw away mine. I'm going to stay on your back till I get my $75,000. No, you don't have to do that because I'm going to pay you back. How are I'm you going to pay, pay you every just cent how? I owe you? I'm going to make you a very famous man. I'm going to write a series of articles, and you're going to be the leading character. Everybody in the town will be talking about you. I might even make you man of the year. All right, go ahead. You go ahead and write. It's been tried before. Who reads and who cares? I care. And who's going to listen to you? People still know how to read. What do you mean, the people? The people, the little people, they sit and get fat and fall asleep in front of the television set with their belly full of beer. That's the people for yeah, you. Well, maybe this will wake them up. That's big talk coming from you, Eddie, and nobody, because that's what you are exactly, and nobody. Well, nobody doesn't have very much to lose. I know you inside out, Nick. I know what you've done and how you did it. And I know how you expect to do it. Listen, the fight game is big business. It's my business. You open your mouth to holler and we'll shut you up. You can have your muscle men work me over. I can still write from a hospital bed. Listen, Eddie, you listen to me. And you pay attention. You get the writing idea out of your head. You can't scare me and you can't buy me and you haven't got any other way. Nick, you're in trouble. You might fight with you. No, 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 you're not fighting me. I'm fighting you. I'm fighting for Toro and myself and every bum that ever got his brains knocked loose in the ring. A man that gives away $26,000 you can't talk to. I want to tell you one more thing. I wouldn't give 26 cents for your future. On March 1st, 1956, Humphrey Bogart had surgery to remove his esophagus, two lymph nodes, and a rib. It was unsuccessful. Chemotherapy followed. He had another surgery in November. Although he became too weak to walk up and down stairs, he joked, despite the pain, put me in the dumbwaiter, and I'll ride down to the first floor in style. Frank Sinatra, Catherine Hepburn, and Spencer Tracy visited him on January 13, 1957. In a later interview, Hepburn said, Spence patted him on the shoulder and said, Good night, Bogey. Bogey turned his eyes to Spence very quietly and with a sweet smile covered Spence's hand with his own and said, Goodbye, Spence. Spence's heart stood still. He understood. 
Bogart lapsed into a coma and died the following day, January 14, 1957, 20 days after his 57th birthday. At the time of his death, he weighed only 80 pounds. His funeral was at All Saints Episcopal Church. It seemed like all of Hollywood came to mourn his passing. Spencer Tracy was to give the eulogy, but he was too moved to do so. John Houston spoke instead. Those pictures carried us, I guess, around the world a couple of times. I had hoped to make six more pictures with Bogart, at least. The next one was to be in Afghanistan. Only the other day, Bogey said, John, we've got to start thinking about this one now. Get it underway. He was planning to make it the very week of his death. When you live and work with a man, you get to know him pretty well. When I say living as closely as I did with, with Bogey, you get to know a man well. I mean just that, and the better I got to know him, the more I admired him. He was a very serious man about his work. He took great pride in being an actor. The side, the face that he presented to the world was quite a different one than, than those who knew him truly well knew. In society, at Hollywood parties, why, he assumed the role of gadfly and tormentor of the fat cats. This gave a, a loud, a, a, a misunderstanding to occur on the parts of, of those who only knew him slightly, who only saw him on those occasions. They thought of him as rowdy, bawdy, and gaudy. In truth... He was a very sincere, a deeply humble man, a very faithful man, uh, faithful to his work, his friends, and finally, lastly, his family. He was a devoted father, and he loved his wife most dearly. It's... Um, a loss to the world, of course, that great talent. But the world can refer to it in the pictures that remain behind, those that he had done. The loss to his family and to his friends is, therefore, all the greater. There'll never be another Bogart. <laughs> 